0: Thanks for listening to the Light Church podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Um, well, if you have a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. God, we made it to the last chapter. Um, we have a couple more weeks in Ephesians. Uh, this passage is a little bit of a doozy. as one that when we were planning out the preaching calendar, um, we had to draw straws to see who got the shorter one to see who wanted to preach this passage, uh, because we're going to be dealing um, with two different themes. One of the themes is what is is, is just a difficult passage of scripture. It's um, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus regarding slaves and masters, and there's a whole lot of complexity to what's going on there. And rather than just kind of moving past it or through it or bypassing it, we wanted to take this as an opportunity just to equip you, just in general, what do you do when you come to a passage in Scripture that feels difficult or even contrary to the nature of God that you've become familiar with? And so then we're going to spend the first half of our, our morning just talking about that. How, how do you relate to difficult passages of Scripture? Um, and then the second theme, which is actually the first part of the scripture, is dealing with parenting. We're going to be talking about the relationships between children and parents and what that looks like in the way of love. Um, And so if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians 6. We're going to read uh, the section together, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the lands, Is quoting from Exodus. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So Heavenly Father, we just invite you here today just to come through your Holy Spirit to illuminate the Word of God. Teach us how to relate to the scriptures, not only the ones that feel applicable, but the ones that feel difficult and complex. So we invite you here to come open up our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. So I've been reading uh, through the book of Genesis with my nine-year-old daughter, Vienna, at night. It was her idea, not mine. I would have probably started her in a safer book, right? Uh, But every night, we're coming up against something that brings up really interesting questions. Like the other night, she's like, so why does Abraham keep telling people that his wife is his sister? Is that, is that normal? I'm like, no, we don't, that's not good, you know? I'm reading, like, Isaac, um, Abram taking Isaac up to the hill to sacrifice him, and she's like, do you think he was nervous? I'm like, yeah, I think he was probably nervous. I'm just like, I'm like, you sure you want to start with, like, Jesus? And she's like, no, no, I want to go, go from cover to cover. I'm like, all right. So we're, like, kind of working through it, but the conversations that I'm having with my nine-year-old, I'm realizing these are conversations that we need to be having in the church because... The, the, one of the beautiful things about the Bible is this is not a culturally manipulated book to appease a certain kind of people. It was written in a certain time and space and history far different than ours, yet it is the Word of God. And as followers of Jesus, we hold the Word of God as that, as, as the revelation of who God is. But the further we get away from ancient Near Eastern culture and language, the more we find ourselves having a difficult time when it comes to certain things. And certain things, not. Certain things, they make sense. And, but there's certain times we come across different themes, patterns, stories that we're like, I don't know what to do with that. Um, and again, there are lectures, books that do a great job with this. I, I just want to spend a few minutes to give you some practical tools on what to do when you find yourself reading something that makes you emotionally feel like, I don't know what to do. With this, kind of like what we just read this morning. So here's, here's three, three kind of rules, and then with some kind of subpoints on how to navigate those. The first one is this: always let the clear interpret the cloudy. So if there is something clear in the Bible, let that be what interprets and kind of sets those cloudy areas of, like, well, I don't know what to do with that. And there's a few different kind of tools that kind of underneath that rule that will help you do that. Number one is recognizing that the Bible tells one unified redemptive story, which means there's a story arc to it. And the same way if you were to walk into a movie theater and you were to see five minutes of a clip and walk out and tell your friends if that movie's good or bad, you're not giving it the, essentially the The reverence is needed in order to be able to give an accurate assessment of that. And so the very first thing you need to do is understand what part of the story are you in. For instance, the Old Testament is given to us partially as a gift to describe what humanity is like in terms of their inability to be faithful to God. The Old Testament, in essence, is a setup for Jesus to come in and to show us a a more fulfilled way. And so, but without the Old Testament, I was even thinking about this week, John three sixteen, for God loved, so loved the world that he gave his only son. But without the Old Testament, we would be tempted to, um, to really think about that verse, well, God so loves a certain type of world. But when you read the Old Testament, you realize, like, wow, God loves that kind of world. He loves all of us in some really messy, complicated things. And so that's an important thing just to kind of have in your back pocket. A couple things that help, the reason why this is important. Number one is what's called progressive revelation, meaning when Adam and Eve showed up, God's not like, here, you know, here's, the, here's who I am. And when the nation of Israel came to being, there was no sacred text. There was no scriptures. Moses started to write them. And so this is what's called progressive revelation. So God is being revealed in a sense of, progressions until ultimately Jesus shows up, which is kind of our second point, Christological theology, and he says this, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, meaning the the Greek word there is telos, meaning all of the Old Testament has been pointing and leading up to me, and now it is revealed in fullness. He says the author of Hebrews talks about how it was God's pleasure that the fullness of God would dwell in Jesus. Meaning, if you want to know what God is really like, Jesus is the is the interpretation lens in which you read the entire Old Testament. But that's again, you, you miss that if you don't understand the story of the Bible or this idea of the revelation is being progressed. Now, the reason why it's important is that Jesus is the fulfillment. Is that God is not continuing to be revealed. Right, we don't get to just be like, "Well, I think God's more like this now," you know. Like, I think God's changing, like the world is changing. No, we look back to Jesus as the ultimate interpretive key to all of it. Uh, The other thing is called what's what's called accommodation theology, meaning God showed up in an ancient, primitive, barbaric, and violent culture and started revealing a new way, but He used people in that culture to write that. So the language and the stories are within a context very different than our Western, secularized, highly technologically industrial changed world. And so sometimes we want to impart our cultural worldview into that rather than doing the opposite understanding what it's doing to us. And so I would just encourage you guys just to just to think that, okay, where are we on the story? And just a practical tool, specifically for those who've never heard of this, there is a phenomenal resource called the Bible Project. It's a website. They have really, really well done, artfully done videos that explain some of these harder concepts. But they also have a video for every book of the Bible. And it's one of the greatest resources you can have. So before you start reading a book, especially maybe an obscure book, watch the video and let them explain what part of the narrative arc this is in. So that's the first rule. Let the clear interpret the cloudy. So get clarity through the narrative arc and through who Jesus is. Secondly, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. This is really important because I see this happen all the time. Is And I've done this, especially when I was growing up, is you read the Bible for you and you ask a question like, man, what did, what did how did that speak to you? Or like, what did that, and this is not, that's not a bad question. But the, the inference there is that the Bible is like just it's speaking to me in my own current context. But the reality is, is the Bible can never mean what it never originally meant. So we actually have to do the hard work of just asking ourselves the question what did the Bible originally mean when it was written and it, when it was received by its hearers? And when we do that, then we get to ask the question. Well, what does that mean for me? 2,000, 3,000 years later in a different culture. And so here's some different ways you can get that sense. Of what did it actually mean? Number one is authorial intent, meaning not only is this God-breathed, it's divine. It was written by human beings. So get to know the author. What, what were they like? What was their bent what was, what was the reason, their intention in writing this book? Sometimes they literally say it at the beginning, and so read it through that lens. Secondly, understand that there is an audience that they're writing to. There is an occasion that they're writing for, and those two things are massive. If, you, if you've sat in my church for a while, you know we spend time talking about that. Who wrote this? Who did they write this to? And what was the occasion for their writing? And again, that, and we'll actually talk about that here today. There is, that shines a lot of light on what was the original intent of the scripture. Next, this is one of my favorites, historical context and cultural context. Um, can Can you imagine someone 100 years from now finding a time capsule of like, you like, 10, 15 years ago, right, with your gigapet and your blackberry and things like that, and you're talking about your blackberry, and they're like, man, these guys really liked fruit back then, you know, like, there's a historical, and this is what I love about the Christian faith, is it's grounded in history. Archaeology of the 35,000 archaeological finds all support the historical accuracy of this book. But that also means this takes place and unfolds in this unique historical and cultural context. Again, we'll talk about that a little bit today when we get to Ephesians. But that largely, it's almost like it goes from black and white to color. (coughs) Understanding that. Um, The other thing which is really fun, this is where it starts getting really nerdy, is the literary structure. Not just what they wrote, but how they wrote it is so incredible. You guys, the the biblical authors were not dumb not only were they inspired by the holy spirit they're brilliant writers and just in just one thing just to have in your back pocket normally in our western society we write something and the main point is at the end for jewish writing oftentimes the main point is in the middle in the middle of the book in the middle of the paragraph and so when you read that, it changes. There's a whole sermon that Peter gives, that the whole point of the sermon is in the very middle, and then it moves outwards in these parallel themes out, outwards. And so just knowing the structure of the book actually tells a story. And then lastly is the original language. It's, and also, you don't have to be like a Hebrew scholar or a Greek scholar. I'm not, um, to actually have just the tools, just to do simple um, word studies. Okay, what, was this, what does this word actually mean? Easiest way to do it is if you can read the verse or the chapter in different translations. If you ever see a word translated in a bunch of different ways, that's your clue that you should actually do a word study on it. Most words that are interpreted the same way in different translations, meaning it probably just means what you mean. You don't have to do a Greek word study on it or Hebrew word study on it. But when you get to a word that like five different word is translated five different ways, that's a clue for you to be like, "Oh, we probably have a hard time translating this into English." So we should pay close attention to how, how to approach this specific word. And so all of, those two, all of those things going together, you begin to start saying, hey, the Bible meant this originally, so we, this is our best attempt to figure that out. And then we can say, okay, hey, how does this mean? What does this mean for me? And then the last thing is just biblical clarity over cultural compliance. And so here's what I, I see all the time. You might be here like, well, who has time for this? And I think that most of the culture would agree, which has led to a few different things. Number one is we don't have the time or don't want to give the time to it. And so we just let the Bible say whatever we wanted to say. And so this leads to either really strong deconstructionist tendencies of like, see, the Bible says this, this, and that, But no one even takes the time to actually understand well, what did it actually, what is it actually trying to say. Or people who are trying to hold faithful to the Bible, try and like bend it, or they bend their theologies to make it fit into a Western progressive secular society. Or what we read today, which is so heartbreaking, is there has been people who've taken scriptures and they've used those scriptures to oppress people, to dehumanize people, and to actually go against the Imago Dei, which is at the very beginning of the story arc of scripture, because of their unwillingness to do this work. J.I. Packer says, bad theology hurts people. It matters. It matters what did the Bible, what was it actually trying to say? And when we don't give it the, the reverence that it deserves to do that, we, we get into some dangerous waters. Now, to, now, with all that said, like I said, the, the solution here isn't education, Right, it's not. That can be part of it, but I would say the key here is humility. When you find something in Scripture that feels like off-putting, don't let that make you run or come to quick conclusions. Be willing to like, pick up the phone, look some, look some things up, open a trusted commentary. Just do a little bit of work so that you are drawn into the mystery and the wonder of the Word of God and instead of what often is interpreted, that it's like it's too removed or it's too dangerous for us. Because that's not the case. And, and my hope is that we'll take some of these tools we learned today and let's apply them to this difficult passage in Ephesians 6, was talking about slaves and masters. What, what is that? Is Paul condoning that? Is, he not, is this not a big deal for Paul? Um, what, what do we do with that? So I wanted to just kind of shine some light um, on what exactly is happening here. Number, number one uh, is just some cultural and historical context here. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked on marriage, at this point in the letter, Paul is starting to riff on what Aristotle wrote 400 years um, before this called household codes. And Aristotle's thesis was this, the house should look like Roman government. And so Aristotle, or sorry, at his time, the Greek government. So he took these codes that kind of defined the government that was kind of honoring the emperor. And then he kind of broke them down to the household uh, that would then benefit the patriarch of that. And I think there's that we should have a a picture of what kind of this breakdown looked like for Aristotle. So, for Aristotle, at the very top of the household was the patriarch. It was the oldest male of the house, and then in his writing, he talks about that the patriarch is the husband, the father, and the master. And then he gives the patriarch instructions on how to deal with his subordinates: the wife, the child, and the slave. Again, this is not Bible. This is Aristotle. This was widely adopted not only by Greek um, Greek but even after Rome took over it's why it's called Greco-Roman and this was continuing continued to be assumed within culture. Now Paul's talking about this radical idea calling the way of love. And then he starts saying this is how this practically looks like in a world that looks like this. And so Paul starts addressing husbands and wives, fathers and children, slaves and masters but what he does here, and again, we'll miss it if we just read it too quickly, is quite brilliant, subversive, and radical in terms of what's happening in the ancient culture here. So let me kind of walk through, specifically when it comes to slaves and masters, what's happening here. Um, number one, I want to start with this. When I say the word slavery, do not think about the, the horrific, I believe, demonic past of America's just stain our history of literally stealing people, using them forced labor with no hope of, of ever having freedom for generations to come. It is it is one of the most beautiful things that have happened in the past 50 years is how Dr. Martin Luther King was able to kind of lead this thing. Hey, even though this institutionally changed, we're not done yet. And so when we think of slavery, when we hear that word in our context as Americans, we're like, how is this even in the Bible? So let me just give you a little bit of difference here. So in, in Roman society, more than half the population would be considered uh, kind of the slave or the servant working class. In Rome, they believed 80% of the population was in this. And some of the key differences were, number biggest one is this was not a lifetime sentence uh, or gener- a multi-generational sentence. It was oftentimes to pay off a debt, and so if you couldn't pay off a debt because of famine or things like that, you would then go into servitude to pay off that debt and then you would be free. And within those cases, oftentimes, what they would be offered is, if you would like, you can stay um, under this household as a slave, but you are now shifted into a free man, meaning you're choosing to do this. Paul uses this, uses this analogy for our relationship with God that we're not forced to stand to God, we're choosing him as our master. And so, and even within the Jewish tradition, slaves were not allowed to be slaves more than seven years period, no matter what happened. And so there's, even the word there is different, but what Paul does here is he actually starts to plant seeds of abolition, which is really, really beautiful. And so I wanna talk about how he does that. Number one is that he dignifies the culturally inferior. He does this by, by just speaking to wives, to children, and to slaves. Dr. Timaki says by speaking directly to wives, children, and slaves, he's giving them a level of status and dignity. By giving them names and their own responsibility, he's making a move that would stand out in protest against the ancient culture. Why? Because Aristotle didn't even address them. And so Paul says, actually, because of the gospel there is something that I want to speak to people where essentially we're just silent. They were used as property. They were used to serve the patriarchy. Secondly, is not only does he dignify the culturally inferior, he humbles the culturally culturally superior. And he does this by addressing the patriarch in these three different roles and radically undermines them um, by by his words. Timothy Gombus, another scholar, says this, Contemporary household codes were given for the benefit of the patriarchs in that they were advised in how to manage or control their households. He subverts the contemporary notion that the ordering of the household should be for the benefit of the patriarch. Paul has in mind so that those in subordinate positions in the new humanity do not exist for the comfort of those at the top. Rather, those who have authority or power are to use it for the good, protection, and nurture of those subordinate to them. And so you see what Paul's actually starting to do here is he's messing with these household codes, but he's doing so in a very strategic way. This is what oftentimes we miss. Now think about this from a mission, missionological standpoint. Christianity begins to start spreading and people don't, they're not happy with it. They're, um, they're not happy with it. Being like, this, is, this is in the, a a society where there's tons of gods and goddesses why is christianity the cause of such persecution and it was because its ideas about women about slaves were so revolutionary about the poor that people felt it a threat to the very roman way of life and so what paul's doing here is rather than attacking the system from the or attacking it from a systemic point he says let's do it from the inside Meaning, let's it, within the system that's here, we have work to do. He's not condoning the system. But what he's saying is, as it exists, let's go about it in such a way that will bring about, um, will bring about the, essentially the undoing of it. And that's exactly what history tells us happened. Wherever the gospel went first, the message of it, and a number of years afterwards, some of these broken systems began to crumble. We saw this with William Wilberforce, we saw this with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that when people partner with the gospel, it eventually leads to these overthrows, these really broken systems. You almost think about, um, you know when you're at the, on an airplane and like they have like the video where they're like, okay, if, you know, loss of cabin pressure, put on your own face mask, uh, oxygen mask first, and then put it on your children. I gotta tell you, that's, it just feels wrong every time I hear it. But the reason they're saying that is not because they hate kids. They're saying that because in order for the kids to be able to get the oxygen they need, you can't let the, the, per, the helper die. Um, or not have the oxygen they need. It's almost like Paul is saying this, by the way he's saying this is, listen, I'm going to give you instructions in terms of this broken system because if the gospel can penetrate the society, then everything else will be taken care of. This will be overthrown. And it's strategic, it's missional on what he's trying to do. And so just as a recap, what is he doing? He's dignifying slaves. Listen to in verse eight. He says, Knowing that whatever good each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord. Now notice he doesn't say, he's not telling the slaves, whatever good or bad you do, God's watching. What does he say? Whatever good you do, you will receive your reward. So what is he telling the slave? He's saying, listen, you may be treated like trash. You may be treated like this. God's watching you. And the good you do is seen and will be rewarded. He dignifies them. And, and simultaneously, he strictly warns those in authority that were operating as masters. He does this in verse 9. He says, and masters. Again, this is it's hard for us to overemphasize how radical the statement was. His masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with I mean like that it gives me chills. I'm like he's he's saying, so listen, it's almost like he's like, I know our system's broken, but if you are a follower of Jesus and you have slaves, please know this your master in heaven is watching everything that you're doing, and he will not show favoritism when you get there. And the, so we read Ephesians six and we're like, and it makes us cringe at first plans, but if we just do a little bit of work, we start seeing like, oh, Paul's planting seeds. Subversive seeds that will lead to the the greatest abolitionist movements in our history come from gospel-centered movements, and it's for people who take seriously the Word of God. And so this is, again, and if you're if this theme of like what is Paul doing here with slavery, I would encourage you um, read Philemon, study Philemon, go watch the Bible Project video on it. It's it's brilliant how Paul sees. He's like. And he tells in Galatians, like, there's no more slave or free in Christ. This is already gone. The minute Jesus rose from the dead, this system doesn't work anymore. Hierarchy is gone. But what he does with Philemon, if you want to go study, it's the shortest book, in the. it's one of the shortest letters that we have. It's addressing a runaway slave and his master and how he, are like, masterfully goes about it. He says, hey you need to treat this guy not be, not how you would treat a, of a runaway slave because if you do, God's watching. I mean, it's crazy what Paul's doing here. And again, this leads to some of the most amazing movements in history. So I just wanted to kind of leave you with that as a little bit of an exercise. Say, okay, there's nothing... There's nothing that we will run across in Scripture that we cannot leave feeling compelled by and refreshed by if we're willing to do the work of reverence and humility and study around it. So that's kind of our first half. Second half, I want to move into that that first section of talking about um, children and parents. So uh, this isn't uh, that much easier because children and parents provides its own uh, kind of uh, kind of some uncharted waters. Uh, but they're not culturally, they're personal. When you start talking about parents and kids, immediately I realize there's people in the room, they're just like, um, man, this is, this is an area of guilt for me. I feel like I haven't done a good job with this. Or I've tried to do the best that I could and my kids have walked away from the Lord. And so when you talk about parenting, this is an incredibly sensitive issue, maybe not culturally, but personally, it very much is. Also, it's hard to teach them because this is not something I feel like I'm like a master at, right? I'm like, I, don't, I mean, I don't know who is. I always wonder if people write parenting books. I'm like, really? Because um, yeah, I'm just constantly being like confronted with my own humanity and my own sense of like, okay, like I gotta go back to this drawing board. I gotta grow again. And And so my hope is that we glean from this, we all approach this with humility, but also I know that there's people in the room that don't have kids, and you might be like, can I leave now? Like, can I go get brunch? And like, you could, but I'd love for you to stay. Um, and the reason I would love for you to stay is because this has implications for us as a church. We're called a family. There are dozens of children just behind, behind you guys that are being shepherded and cared for, that really really matter and so learning us learning some of these principles will actually overflow and just to the culture of what god's building through light church and so um so with that i want to read again the first four verses and then i want us to kind of glean from some of what paul is instructing the church Children, obey your parents and the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, It is from God that parents receive their children, and it is to God that they, in turn, ought to lead them. So, a quick word on children and a quick word on parents. Children are being asked to obey and to honor. Parents are being asked to not stir up anger. I'm going to call this emotional shepherding. And then they are called to train and instruct them in the way of Jesus, which I'm calling intentional discipleship. So first for kids. Um, Some of you guys want to go get your kids and have them sit in for this part, right? Just let them hear obedience and honor. Um, Obedience, again, is a Greek word that just translates quite nicely. It means you obey, you do what you're being told. Um, obedience, teaching children obedience has incredible benefits, not only for the the peace in your own household, um, but because our hope is that when we train our children to obey, that will them that will then filter into their ability to obey God someday. It's why obedience matters more than them just being safe or not running into the street or not touching the stove. The obedience that we're instructing them is, Please learn to obey my voice so it'll be easier for you to obey God's voice. So obedience is incredibly important. Um, In in our house, we have this phrase that when our kids are not obeying, we like lean in and we talk to them, say, how do we obey in this house? And they say, right away, all the way with a happy heart. The happy heart thing is normally with like gritted teeth, you know, so like we're working on that. But uh, we learn this from our friends, but it's, for us, it's been a helpful thing. When I ask you to go do something, I want it done right away, all the way, with a happy heart. We're, at, we're like batting below 100 right now, right <laughs> in that kind of arena, but that's the point of parenting. It, we, and so our, our, with our kids, we'll ask them like, how do we obey? And they'll recite it back to me. It's a little bit of a parenting liturgy. And the, my hope is not that I'm trying to create a bunch of machines that are like, yes, dad, I'll do whatever, you know? Um, I mean, that'd be great, but <laughs> my hope is that when their heavenly father speaks to them, they'll do it right away. They'll do it all the way and they'll do it with a happy heart. And I know that that begins in our home. And so, but but Paul says obey, but he also says to honor. And honor is a little bit different uh, because how you bring honor to your parents as a young kid looks like obedience. But what does that look like as you get older? I mean, would it, I mean, am I still called to honor my parents? I believe so. Am I still called to obey them? That would be a bit weird, you know? I had to call my mom every single time I want to get ice cream, you know, as a 37-year-old man, it might be a little bit strange, you know, strain on our marriage. You know, Jen's like, why are you calling your mom again? I'm like, yes, I have to obey the Bible. Um... So I, here's a little graph for you guys. Maybe this is overly simplistic, but this is what the kind of what obedience and honor looks like. So when you're born, obedience is begins, right? And so you're wanting them as soon as they're able to understand, just do what I say, and I do and do this because I love you. Um, eventually, hopefully, that wears off, right? Like hopefully, it's around the time that they're leaving the house. But obedience is, should not continue into your adulthood. That would be a bit strange. Um, and again, this has cultural nuance to it. We're not going to fully dive into it. But honor, when you're a kid, you don't get it. Honor is something you bring upon your family. Obedience is what you do in your family. Honor is something that you're contributing. When you're a kid, you're not really contributing honor very much at all. And as you get older, you're growing your potential that. But eventually, your obedience and your honor intersect. That it's through your obedience to your parents that you're bringing honor to them. But notice that that time is actually pretty small. And then, you're, although your honor is continuing to increase, I I'm thinking about my mom who's caretaking um, for, her, for her mom right now. And that that is an act of honor. It's an act of, of caring, and, um, and that's, that's, that's the trajectory we should move. But it's understanding that, that as that goes down, and this is the reason I'm bringing up this graph, is some of the most interesting pastoral counseling sessions I have is with young adults who are trying to figure out being obedient to the call of God on their life when it conflicts with their parents' call on their life. Like, what do I do? Like, I feel like I'm called to like, go be part of YWAM and go do DTS. I want to go to Bible college. My parents, you know, they, 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 they're talking about good parents. They love them, and they have this idea for them to go to this college or get this career, um, and they're um, watching this strange thing. And, and oftentimes that conversation is, obviously, you want relational unity, you want love to be in that place, but sometimes it comes to this moment where I'll look at these people and I'm like, the most honoring thing you can do for your family is to obey the voice of God. Like, it brings honor on your family. I mean, think about when I look at the people in my life who will obey the voice of God no matter what. It only brings honor upon their family. It may not be understood. I mean, it wasn't understood for Jesus, right? When he stayed back when he was 12 in the temple. And his mom comes, like, what the heck, Jesus? You know, it's in the Greek, is what it says. Uh, and, and he's like, and he looks at her. I mean, is, he, is Jesus being disobedient? Um, we don't know the full story, but is Jesus being dishonoring? No. He's honoring his mom by being obedient to his father. I mean, Justice talked about it last week, right? With with his mom and his brother coming and saying, like, he's out of his mind. It would be wrong for him to obey at that moment. And at that moment, he realized the greatest honor he could ever give his mother or his brothers, who we know didn't believe him to be the Messiah, was to simply obey his father. And so... Uh, for us, this this looks like monitoring, like that if you, again, if you're young or you're around children, understanding that like, you want them to increase in honor, but you want obedience to be increasing towards the Lord, because not only did their things um, change, our parenting roles change. So this is um, different parenting roles based on children's age. This is kind of an adaptation from Andy Stanley. Um, that first stage, zero to five years old, your job is to nurture and discipline, and often those two things go hand in hand right, that your discipline is to nurture them, is to keep them safe, and that's, that's your role. Um, at some point, that needs to shift to purpose and training, so from five to 12, so from five to the adolescence, You are trying to excavate their potential. You're trying to see who has God made them to be? What's their wiring? What's their gifting? And you're kind of walking alongside them, training them. I think about my dad making me take piano lessons, and none of my other siblings did. And I couldn't figure out why. And he told me later, he's like, Because you had something that I saw that was unique in me. So I had a rule I didn't get to eat dinner until I practiced piano 30 minutes a day. I hated it. But my dad saw purpose in that. Before we planted Light Church, I spent a year and a half as a worship leader. That was how I provided for my family, on a piano. But my dad was willing to put in all, with all my grumbling and grievances about playing the piano, it ended up being something that was beneficial to not only me, but to many other people because he saw purpose and he walked with me through training in a specific field. Once they hit adolescence, psychologically and culturally speaking, if you're a parent, your voice still matters. It's just not heard anymore, Right? your, your, the influence on your children's life has dramatically decreased and the influence of their friends is dramatically increased. And so at this point, it's, it, this is where oftentimes there's a crisis and you're always going to hear like, oh man, wait till they're teenagers and things like this. Because I think that we assume that we get to continue to stay in the same role as parents. But I think if you shift it in understanding your role is listening and coaching, uh and your kids know that like hey i'm not going anywhere don't lose proximity yet if anything get closer than ever but listen what's going on get to know what what is the influence that they're getting from their friends coach them through that um my my um zoe who's not in the room she's going to be a sophomore and we have these conversations all the time of like what movies are we letting her watch what friends are we letting her hang out with and it's not it we're not trying to control her because we know in three years she's she's off on her own but we're trying to listen. What's going on? What are you hearing? How are you processing that? We're coaching her through that because the goal in a very short window, she's going to be needing to make decisions on her own. And so our role needs to shift as parents. And then lastly, after you move out of the house and you kind of hit that, that adulthood stage that psychologists are now saying much later, but you want to move into mentorship and friendship, right? And this is where we, we get to still sit in that seat of a sage maybe if you've lived more life, but you want to enjoy friendship. And again, this is problematic when you want to do this too fast, right? When you want to be a friend to your 12-year-old and you want to just be like, oh, you know, I just really liked. At that point, that's not what they need. At some point, they will need that. But it's understanding the different phases that you're in and engaging that um, appropriately. And let's just kind of keep tracking on this idea of parents. So Paul says, don't stir up anger in your children. So we know that anger is kind of a secondary response, right? I mean, there's something underneath that's happening that's causing that anger. And as parents, we get to like lean into that emotional space and that shepherding and that formation that's happening. Um, One of the most helpful books that I came across is called Habits of the House. And um, I enjoyed it because it really just took time uh, just talking about the same way we are formed by the habits in our business and our physical health. It's the truth of parenting. Um, but he has this graph in there that I thought was helpful in terms of like how to engage when you're trying to shepherd their, um, their emotions in terms of discipline. Like we're called to discipline, we're called to correct and to provide consequences, but how do you do this in a way that's actually helpful? And so his, his foundation that he lays out that I think is really like biblically appropriate is just loving authority. Like you are coming from a place, everything builds on this idea of loving authority and you cannot overemphasize one word over the other. If you're just trying to be authoritarian without love, it'll make them get hard and run away or they'll make them just wanna please you in an unhealthy way. If you're trying to be all loving without any authority, they'll go and give that authority to someone else who's willing to have it. And so you need to have loving authority as a parent And so when you encounter a situation where they've done something wrong, you need to discipline, you need to do these things, Just some things to keep in mind. Number one is um, really think thoughtful about the consequences. Um, Oftentimes we reach to the thing that gets the quickest results, but that's not always going to do the the best results. Because remember, we're not after correcting behavior, we're after transforming hearts. And so thinking about the consequences, Um, and that normally comes to the second point of understanding, and this is for me a personal conviction, um, more often than not, if there's like a big blow up, one of my kids is crying, or both of them are crying, I rush in, driven by what I think I'm trying to do to help, and oftentimes I will, I will react more sympathetically to the person who's crying louder, and then deal out a discipline quicker to the person who I think is doing it, and I have no understanding. And it's so embarrassing to realize I did not have the whole story. And so just seeking understanding, like, um, like when I talk to one of my kids and they've hurt someone, rather than being, rather, like, I used to be like, why did you do that? And then they start telling me, I'm like, oh, that actually kind of makes sense. It's really sad. I'd probably do the same thing. But oftentimes, I don't really don't want to know why they did that. But if you just start with a question and seek that understanding. Um, obviously, another one that's really important is body language. You know, it's like getting down to their level, looking in their eyes, watching the level of tone that you have in your voice. Um, prayer is obviously huge. Um, remember, we are not parenting alone. We are parenting alongside our Heavenly Father, our children. So partnering with Him in that. And probably the most like practical piece of advice that I could give or that's worked in me is just a, just a healthy pause. Right? Timeouts are great for me more than for my kids. Let's just be honest. And so, just taking time, just to pause, to pray, to assume, or to, to to consider my body language, to seek understanding, and to find appropriate consequences, and which then lead to what? This confession, right? We want our kids to feel like it's safe enough to talk about what they did wrong because that will largely dictate the kind of people they'll become. It's not like how much they can live in fear of not making someone upset, but do they have the ability to process what they just did? This is that spiritual, psychological research has shown um, a child's ability to work through and to talk through and to confess what's going on will dramatically help them. But remember, all of this is leading towards people of reconciliation. And so... It's in the confession to God and to each other that we're trying to cultivate that within within our kids. And um, which kind of leads us to our last point this morning is that the, inst- the instruction that Paul gives them to, to fathers, to parents, he says to train and to instruct them in the way of Jesus. And that has language of practice and discipline and habits. And again, um, Justin Early says this, to steward the habits of your family, is to steward the hearts of your family. Your heart follows your habits. And so being intentional uh, with that. The kind of within the Christian tradition, uh, this is called a rule of life. So it's agreed upon set of practices or rhythms that a body or a family uh, agrees to, to kind of set up habits that open up your heart to the love of God. This in the early church became known popularly as a school of love which I just thought is a, great, is a great phrase of what the family should be, right? It's a school of love. We're, we're teaching how to love. And so this summer when we, um, the kids got out of school and they're around us a lot more and we're running around and there's less structure and there's less habits, we just made it very clear as we started implementing a few different things. We just called it the summer of love. And, um, and so our kids just like got a hold of that and they like, love it. So like almost every other day, just bring it up like, remember guys, summer of love. I'm like, that's right guys, that's right. Um, someone starts getting a little squirrely or like hasn't eaten, things like that. I'm like, oh, summer of love. Um, but watching our kids lean into it has been really, really um, beautiful and beneficial. Um, and then the reason why it's important is that without intention, we can actually enter into some dangerous water. So just two things we want to be watchful of. Um is we want to be careful, uh, number one, of sacrificing the well-being of our children for the purpose and the success of something else. And this is again very prevalent in our culture like we, we choose other things that our priorities are important, and they sometimes correlate to the well-being of our children, but it's remembering that it is, it is our our intention around our children is so important. I love what Andy Stanley said. He says, the most important thing you will do in your life may not be something you do, but someone you raise. And so it's just taking on this sense of, okay, Lord, I want to be careful of this. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. And my friends, the reality is the, op, the other end of the pendulum is really prevalent too, where we sacrifice our kids by idolizing them. We make them all, our own little mini lords that we worship. Now, here's what I will say. I, I've heard pastors say, like, you need to be careful like how much you affirm them, how much you love them. And I'm just... I'm, just, I'm being filmed, so I can't say the word I want to say right now. Um... <laughs> Listen, you can't like love your kids too much. Don't be like I wonder if I'm like being like too nurturing. Like no, like love them, get them close, encourage the heck out of them. But if your loving and nurture of them is to produce something in them that will benefit you, and you are turning them into some sort of functional savior, it happens all the time. We need that kid to do to become someone, to do something, to fulfill a need because you didn't get that other places, or maybe even your spouse doesn't provide that. So your kid provides that for you. It's unfair to the child. Because they were never meant to carry that burden. And so we have to be careful of, of, of either of these extremes, recognizing that it's that we have to work hard. And our children don't need all of our time. They need to see us working hard. That's one way to throw it for them. And at the same time, we need to dote on our kids and be their biggest cheerleaders and encourage them, but just making sure that we don't find ourselves in the extremes of those things. And so what do we do? We become people who form and bless our children. And so I just want to read the words of Jesus here because he just does this so well. And the reason I want to read the words of Jesus is not only because it's a good model, is because it shows us what it looks like to do it even for children who are not in your nuclear family. This is our role as followers of Jesus. This is how we should treat children, whether it's our own or those around us. Mark 10, verse 13 says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, which is a Greek word that means he's furious. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is such a beautiful picture of, of, again, remember that graph, the patriarchy, right? All children were, were a way to serve someone in higher authority. And so here's this rabbi, influential, crowds coming to see him. What do his disciples do? They shoo away the children. They rebuke the parents. And Jesus gets furious. And he does a couple of things. He says, number one, You all need to become like them, if you really want the kingdom of God, guys. This is such a powerful and compelling thing of why we bring up children's ministry all the time. I was this not in my notes, but we need people to shepherd kids. But can I tell you, we need our kids to shepherd you. You will, according to Jesus, learn more about the kingdom of God by spending an hour with them than you will be sitting listening to his teaching they'll show you what the kingdom of God is like. And they need you to be like Jesus, agents of blessing upon them, formation for them. And so again, whether it's in our children's ministry, your own kids, in your neighborhood, be around children, not only for how you can bless and encourage them, because you have something to learn from them according to Jesus. And then in this moment that his disciples are so uptight, like, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Jesus draws them in closer, because so he embraces them and blesses them. I, I felt personally convicted about this. Um, this week, I was I had a really long day, I can forget which day it was, but um, a lot of sermon prep and some tough meetings, and um, we went into the evening, and then we got home, and we we're on the phone, and... Um walking with someone going through like a really hard time is really a meaningful and important conversation. And all the while I'm like watching my clock. I'm this is my personality. I'm like, ah, like we're like past bedtime, it's getting late. And then all of a sudden it's getting really late. And I'm starting to like that thing in me is kind of building up. Like, I gotta get the kids like brush their teeth and like get pajamas on, but I can't leave this conversation. And and, and then I'm starting to hear the kids like knock on our door, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, just a minute. And they're like, okay, we have something to show you. And I'm like, what does that mean? Um, and, and so the, the phone call ends. And, and at this point, I mean, it's like, it's late, like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And I'm like, none of our all of our kids are up. And, um, and we go out there and Augustine has like a, like a stool and he's like standing there like this. And he's like, do you have your tickets? I'm like, for what? And he's like, and he's like, What's your name? I'm like, Benji. He's like, What's your last name? I'm He And he like, gives me a ticket, gives one to Jen. He's like, Right this way, please. And he <laughs> walks around the corner, and there's like streamers all over our kitchen and stuff like that. And, and they're like, It's family game night! <laughs> and there's like snacks and bowls, and there's cards and things like that. There's music playing. And they're just like, Look at what we did! I gotta be honest, I was like, It's so late like <laughs> and i was in this conflicted moment i'm like ah, uh, what do i do like you should be brushed you should be asleep and i should be asleep and like you should be getting pajamas on or something like that and but it's one of those moments where like i just felt like i i had this opportunity i could be like the disciples or like jesus in this moment and so Jenna just looked at her like, all right, we're gonna lean into it. And just for like the next like forever how long, we just like ate sugar and played games and played a lot of music and stayed way too late, which we paid for the next day. But it was so good of just this moment of like this again, brushing teeth and bad times, they're like, like super important, right? These are from the habits. But there's this moment where my At my best, I will be an agent of blessing and formation for my children. And what that looks like is my presence. It looks like my attention, my phone turned off and away, laughing together, letting them know that I see value in them and not just utility. I see who they are now, not just who they're going to become someday. And I think that when we as as followers of Jesus lean into that, it becomes a beautiful expression of what the way of love looks like in terms of the family. Um, I'm going to invite Taylor to come up and play some let's play some music behind me. I just want to end with just a moment of prayer. I was, um, like I said, like even teaching this for me was like, um, I had to kind of wrestle through some of my own stuff, some convictions I felt the Holy Spirit putting in my heart. And, but I just wanted to say if there's a big difference between conviction and condemnation. Um, the enemy will use condemnation uh, to give you a weight that makes you feel like the only way out of this is to beat yourself up. Conviction is a liberating feeling that invites you into life, invites you into freedom. And that's my hope in, is to understand through that. And, but here's, here's how that happens is how we're going to conclude our morning. The only way we will parent like our Heavenly Father, is to be parented by our Heavenly Father. And my prayer for you this week, more than you, like, buying a book or building a chore chart or, like, getting more intentional, my prayer for you this week is for you to pay attention to how the Heavenly Father parents you. And let that form how you parent your children. And so I was coming across some research this week that neurologists say that the human brain is hardwired. When, they're, when you're born, you can't see much, but you're looking for someone looking back at you. It's our our, our most primal inst- instinct as a newborn baby is to look at someone looking back at us. And I, as I read that, I just felt like for our moment this morning is, is we need that. We need to find ourselves looking at our Heavenly Father, looking back at us in love. Which is why, going back to our very first point, we can't just be like, it's too complicated. It's, oh, we don't need it. Like, we need this. Why? Because it's one of the tools God gives us just to look at God looking back at us and love. And so, I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. We're just going to just do a quick prayer exercise and then we'll be dismissed. I think one of the greatest gifts God has given humanity is the gift of imagination. So would you right now just close your eyes and would you activate and sanctify that imagination by just imagining you looking into the eyes of your Heavenly Father and Him looking back at you in love. I just want you to sit with that image just for a few moments. For some of you, it's, it's maybe for the first time in a long time, you sensing God noticing you with a level of care and nurture. I get a sense that for some of you, it may look like the heavenly father looking at your tired eyes and just saying, well done. I know how tired you are. I know you're doing the best that you can. Keep going. For some of you, it's almost like he's just smiling. He's just enjoying you. For some, it may be even a, a look of concern. Not Again, not of anger, but of, of desire. I want you to experience the abundant life of Christ. Follow me. Walk with me. Whatever that is, we just continue to focus on that. Maybe you use this as a prayer exercise each morning. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of being parented by you. And the reality is so do our children. We thank you that my four kids are loved and parented by you in a more profound way than I ever will. So would you help the children in our care, in this church, in our neighborhoods, find themselves in environments that continue to not not open themselves up to how great we are, but to how amazing you are as our Heavenly Father. we love you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Would you continue to draw us back to who you are? We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.